Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Out of the Gray. I'm so excited today. We have with us a very special guest from a different part of our world these days, Ron Dejamo. Ron, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. My name is Ron Dejamo, and I've been in radiation oncology and healthcare sector for about 30 years, specializing in billing, coding, operations, and strategic planning. Thank you so much for joining us today and introducing yourself. Such a lovely opportunity to meet you and get to know you a little bit better. If you don't mind sharing with us, how did you find your way into radiation oncology? What did that journey look like for you? You know, it was interesting. I had a single mom, two brothers, and she was a school teacher. So we didn't have a lot of money. And uh, I happened to go to a private Catholic school. She worked two jobs my entire life. So I went to a school that I probably shouldn't have been able to go to. And at that time, uh, you know, I was projected into the top quarters of uh, UT, A&M, Baylor, which are all Texas schools. And I was told, you know, you have a full ride scholarship, but I didn't know what that meant. And so I thought four year college degrees were for all the rich kids. And I was not one of the rich kids. So I thought uh, community college was right for me. And uh, that's what I did. My mom was, she was a supporter, but she would say, you know, I'm not, I don't care what you do, but you got to do something. You can't stay here. And uh, I went and she had become friends. Uh, She worked in the hospital cafeteria for a while for extra money. And she had become friends with the, radiology folks. And she said, you know, you ought to check into taking x-rays. And, uh, and that's what I did. I looked at that. I got into x-ray school. And right two weeks before graduation, the radiologist who was over special procedures said, you know, Ron, you're the best student in the class, which of course I knew. And he said, I'd love to hire you. And uh, if you decide to stay in Waco, I will hire you. He goes, but you know, you've got to move on. You got to go to bigger cities and and bigger things are in store for you. And I had no idea what any of that meant. And nobody had ever really talked to me like that before in my life. And he said, uh, you should go into radiation therapy. And I didn't know anything about radiation therapy. So I started researching it. I had never met anyone with cancer. And so I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know anybody with cancer. And as I researched it, I found out, I started looking at, if I get into x-ray, I've got to work nights and weekends for a long period of time. And then I started researching radiation therapy. I'm like, oh man, this is Monday through Friday. It's only daytime hours. And I was like, that is for me. And I had no idea what it actually meant. Then I went and applied to a couple of schools, and this is all within that two-week period. And I happened to make it just under the deadline. I got accepted into Austin, and I started radiation therapy school. It was great. I went there. It was Alan Shivers. We were treating about 250 patients a day, and we had four accelerators at the main facility. And later we got a satellite with two accelerators and we had three different simulators. And so with that kind of volume, you see everything. And I learned everything. And, you know, a lot of my friends who were older than me, you know, they were really old. They were in their 
late 20s and early 30s, you know, ancient. I was thinking, man, I got to retire soon. And when the kids started coming in, we, we treated children as well. We treated uh, six-month-old, two-year-olds, that kind of stuff. And again, this was my introduction to folks with cancer. And I started really liking them all. And I started becoming friends with them because I didn't, while I was learning about cancer and what all, how it affected the body, it's really different too when you're meeting the people. And, you know, most people, when they come in with cancer, they were walking and talking and dressed well. And I mean, I just, I guess I thought I was going to be treating a lot of folks or seeing a lot of folks in hospitals and stretchers and on vents. And that's kind of what I imagined in my mind. But in a cancer center, it's not like that. Everybody just looked regular. And I thought, okay, you know, I started getting to know them. And then when I started treating children, all the old therapists who had young children didn't want to treat the kids. I wasn't really getting that. Now, I completely understand. But at the time, I was like, okay, well, you know, that's weird. And I'll stay long and I'll do whatever's necessary, come in early. And I I loved it because I got overtime. And I started treating these, these kids. And I remember distinctly, there was a six-month-old beautiful little girl. And she had a brain tumor. And there was, uh, there was another uh, little kid that we were treating with a Wilms tumor, a two-year-old. And then another little kid that we were treating, and she was four. As I was treating them, I remember the little four-year-old coming around. And I was always happy to see her. And every time she came around, I'd get a smile. And I could see her when she would come around the corner, she would see me. And it's like she got a smile, but she would also like start dropping tears. And I was like, oh man, you know, I don't want to have that kind of reaction with the kid. I want them to be happy to see me and all this. Well, all three of those kids didn't make it. You know, we had a bunch of kids, obviously, that did make it, but those, it hit me pretty hard. And I was like, oh man, this is. It's not my not be for me. So what was happening is all the other, I didn't want anybody to have cancer. And I wouldn't, you know, I didn't want any of them there. But at least the 70s and 80s, while it's terrible to have cancer, I was like, man, they had a life. When you're six months old or two years old or four years old, they're just starting life. How is this going to be? So I thought, you know, I need to separate more from this, but I wasn't really able to for me. So I started getting more into business side of things. And my instructors were like, you know, Ron, this is all great and all. Patients love you. You should really stick with that. And when you have a piece of paper that says, no, you know what you're talking about, you come back. And I thought, okay, well, so maybe business is more more difficult than I thought. Well, I got my bachelor's degree and I decided uh, at Weber State, Utah. And then I started thinking, you know, this didn't really change how I believe things. I understand now the return on investment. I understand management, all that kind of stuff, which was really good because while I was at Allen Shivers, I had gotten promoted to supervisor over 25 therapists. And, you know, when there was, keep in mind, this was me 
learning how to deal with treating children. This is learning how to deal with adults. I passed my boards first time, of course. And so I was in there and I was working with these folks. And because I did all the overtime, I learned all the new programs. And at that time, we did the first intraoperative procedure in Austin, Texas. We also had a record and verify known as Veriflex. Probably nobody is even knows what that is or even heard of it before, but that was our system. And I was learning all of these things, the first one to learn it, because I would stay late and come in early. And that's how I ended up becoming supervisor. Well, I didn't have any tact at the time. I got into a uh, cancer center. Oh, I got married. My wife and I started traveling. And I thought, you know, I need to be at a place where I wasn't a student so they could see me as a real therapist. Even though I was a supervisor, some of the doctors and some of the managers still saw me kind of as a, as a student. So I went off, I did my own thing. I became a uh, cancer center director in Columbus, Ohio. I remember the vice president who hired me and said, well, you know, we only had two people interview for this position. You're the only one who showed up. And you know what? You're a therapist, so we're going to go ahead and give you the job. At least you can treat if we can't make our budget for the administrator. And I mean, nothing he said phased me. I was like, great, I'm happy to have the job. We were losing about $100,000 a month. Within six months, we made a $20,000 profit, which is not a lot, but we stopped the losses. And I remember being called to the corporate offices. And the owners came in and said, uh, and I was like, I got all excited. I would, when he told my wife, you know, I'm going to the corporate office. And, and she's like, that's great. Everything. She was in radiation therapy school at the time. And uh, I got up there. I'm all excited to be there. And the owners said to me, do you know why you still have your job? And I was like, <laughs> Uh, you know, because I was expected to be pat on the back and, and all this, right? And so uh, they said, do you realize that within three months, you spent your entire marketing budget? You spent your entire operational budget at four and a half months for the entire year. And they said, do you know why you still have your job? And I was like, why? And they said, because this is the first time in five years we've turned a profit at that facility. And they said, did you get lucky? Or you think you can keep making this go? And I said, well, you know, try me out. Let's see. I'm like, I think I can do it. And at the time, so imagine this. I was almost 26 and I had a corporate checkbook. And so I could write checks for whatever I thought was necessary, or at least that's what I thought. Because in school, they teach you, you know, watch out for personnel, treat them right, do everything by the book, make sure your budgets are in place. But my budgets, I had never, I had, they were not sending me the regular budgets. So I thought, well, you know, give me a checkbook. I, you know, I cleaned up the parking lot. I hired gardeners. I brought in security. I hired another therapist. I've started doing marketing. Uh, at that time, you could have, um, all kinds of screening programs. So I, I advertised on the newspaper and I said, uh, Catch a Killer was the name of the program that we did. But you know what? We got 175 men 
the first morning we did a prostate screening. So we made all kinds of news. We made every local newspaper. We started getting flooded with prostate cancer. And so what we did was, of course, all the prostate cancer, you know, if they needed radiation, we just moved on. But anything with BPH, TERPs, whatever, got referred back out to all the urologists. And at that time, we started getting more and more referrals. Well, all of this led to a sell, ultimately, of that cancer center, a multi-million dollar profit. Well, eventually, I started getting trained to become the chief operational officer of this facility, which was now of this corporation, which was now getting ready to go public. I was doing 75 million and my wife had gotten pregnant and she was a radiation therapist at the time and she wanted to move back to Texas. And so I listened to her. We moved to Texas. I worked for American Oncology Resources and we had 19 radiation oncologists at the time. And the entire company was only doing $250 million a year. But that was a huge jump from 75 million. And at that time, part of my job was make it bigger, make it better. So I helped started to design cancer centers, pick equipment, create staffing models. So that was this first large scale scenario nationwide where we started looking at number of physicists, number of dosimetrists, number of therapists per patients under treatment. And then we started looking at centralized asymmetry. We started looking at beam matching. We were the ones who negotiated with Varian on beam matching. And so that way, every one of the... We went to Varian, toured the plant in Palo Alto. And what we wanted to do was all of our accelerators that came out, we wanted to drastically decrease our commissioning time. So... It was taking, on average, anywhere from five to six weeks to commission a new accelerator. And that was not acceptable because we were growing at such a rate. So what we did was we worked with Varian and we worked with lots of different manufacturers, by the way. But them in particular, we wanted every accelerator that came to our facility to have the exact same beam match. So that way, we decreased from six weeks commissioning down to one week. And that's what became the standard in our firm. We were buying a huge amount of accelerators per year at uh, AOR. We were looking, we merged with PRN and it was called U.S. Oncology. That's how U.S. Oncology began. We changed research throughout the world. We changed a lot of different things. That's like a whole different discussion. And that's a long answer to your question, but sorry. That, that's how I became. So this kid who didn't know what it meant to get a scholarship (laughs) and thought you had to go to a community college because only rich kids went to four-year college courses. That changed. I eventually, of course, got my MBA from Oklahoma Christian University. Uh, I lived in Edmond, Texas and Oklahoma, both close to my heart. As a side note, you know what I think the coolest... I mean, lots of cool things. They start every class with a prayer. Yes, they do. I think that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. And it, there aren't a whole lot of places around that where that's no. it, you know, that's kind of a dying trend. Yep. I love Oklahoma and Texas. And that's a cool thing because my mom, who worked two jobs to put me through Catholic schools where we started every day with a prayer mm-hmm. too, 
it's funny that she ingrained all that in me as a person, as a child. And she also taught me every cuss word I know. (laughs) (laughs) Fair balance there. Yeah, that's right. Right. Oh, wow. That's such, such a good introduction. What an amazing story you have there. Truly intriguing to consider how coming from, you know, as you said, not realizing what a full ride scholarship meant to where you are today. Yeah, you know what's weird is even at our own firm, which my wife and I started in our living room in uh, 2002, it was just me and her. We had three kids under five. She was the secretary. She was the CFO. She was the HR manager. She was the tax person, the accountant, everything. And she worked for free because we had no money to pay a salary. And I started doing some consulting to now uh, our consulting firm is the largest of its type in the United States with clients in all 50 states. I still can't believe it. Yeah, that had to have taken guts with three young ones running around and and starting a, a new firm from the coffee table in your living room. Yeah. That had to be a... Uh, yeah, that, that's gutsy <laughs> for sure. And honestly, if I can do it, really anybody can do it. That's all deal. And your firm is Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies? Yes, Revenue Cycle Coding Strategies. And uh, our billing firm is RC Billing. And our strategic firm is the Oncology Group. I see. So multifaceted even still. Yes. Still growing. How it, Should someone be interested in reaching out for coding assistance or learning more about the billing process. I know, I know, especially right now, things are kind of tumultuous even within our own government about how billing and coding and transparency, the ROAPMs are coming. We're scheduled to start this year. I know things are changing rapidly. Um, how might one get in touch with your group for advice on how to handle these coming changes? Oh, absolutely. I would encourage you to visit our website. It's rccsinc, rccsinc.com. And our phone number, corporate office phone number is 512-583-2000. And if you ask to speak to me personally, uh, I'm happy to speak to anybody, especially if you're looking for a job. My preference, we hire anybody who's qualified, but my preference a lot of times is uh, radiation therapists. I think radiation therapists are sharp, motivated, they have compassion, but they also make stuff happen. So... But of course, you know anybody who's qualified uh, in any way, love to have them in our in our firm. Uh, Melody, who is our president of RCCS, she is outstanding. She's an engineer by training. She doesn't have a clinical background, and she's probably the best operational person that I've met in my entire career. So she's the one who runs all of our day to day operations. She's uh, fantastic. So anybody who's qualified. All right. Uh, apply with me, please. <laughs> Check out the website, the little careers page, and, and send in a resume. That's right. You know, it's interesting. You asked about the ROA PM. I think that the radiation oncology alternative payment model in concept can't be argued with. It's a great concept. And, and the whole thing is that you're going to get paid some flat amount, whether it's, let's say, it's $10,000, $15,000 for breast cancer, for lung cancer, for XYZ cancer. And you're going to get 
50% of it when you start the treatment, another 50% when you finish the treatment, and it's going to include all this stuff. So in concept, it sounds great. The problem is, there's a lot of little details that didn't account for, and the payment rates aren't matching some of the things. So it includes this long period afterwards, and it also includes two years of, wait a minute, if we paid you too much, we can go back and recoup what we paid you. And we can also hold a portion of your payment until this is all settled out. And you know, all of those kind of little details are dependent on the accuracy of the government and the accuracy of all of these complicated details of maybe radiation oncologist A does the external beam and radiation oncologist B does the brachytherapy as a boost, but the boost doesn't get recognized because it falls into the period of A, but they're two separate tax IDs. All of that, that's just one scenario of many that wasn't thought through. And so what we've done is we've been lobbying senators, congressmen, working with different national societies. So far, the ROAPM has been delayed two and a half years. This is coming up on 2022. I mean, 2020, yeah, 2022, where it's supposed to go into place. I would bet odds that about 85% is not going to happen. And if it gets delayed beyond July 1st, of 2022, the entire ROAPM has got to be renegotiated, which is not a bad thing. Then we go through the whole concept, like I said, really is good. It makes it easier on the hospitals, makes it easier on the doctors, it makes it easier on the insurance companies because you're only dealing with two different payments. And the whole deal there is insurers are no longer going to tell radiation oncologists how to treat a patient, right? So if you have a breast cancer patient, this is a stage one, or you have a prostate cancer patient, it's a stage one. Well, your radiation therapist, what's the best way to treat them? Well, there's lots, right? You could treat them with HDR. You could treat them with LDR. You could treat them with hypofractionation. You could treat them with BID. You could treat them all in five fractions if it's a prostate. Are any of those wrong? No. Really, what is right for that individual patient and that training of that radiation oncologist? So that's the nice thing. Nobody's telling a doctor what you need to do to take care of Mrs. or Mr. Jones. They just make that decision. And regardless, you still get that dollar payment. So that's a concept that's great. The part that's not good is all the if, ands, or thens and the complications of, of payments. So that's kind of the downside of the ROAPM. And we've got to straighten all that out before it goes live. Not to mention that none of the details, such as the modifiers, have been released to the billing companies or the insurance companies. So if we wait until November, which would be the case, and then we're at the end of November, and we're supposed to execute all of this within one month by January 1st. New programs have got to be put in place, new payment methodologies. 
That's going to delay or stop payments for radiation. 33% of radiation oncologists across the nation. Not a good thing. No, that's going to create some some struggles for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially following the pandemic. You know, Mm -hmm. some hospitals and some uh, radiation facilities are, are struggling. I mean, it's Here's, here's an interesting thing and an unfortunate thing. I'm sure you've heard this and some of the other folks you're talking to is because we a large part of our business is also radiology. What we saw up in the Northeast United States is some radiologists saw their diagnostic volume decline 90%, 9-0. So for the first time in my career, and you know maybe others listening to this uh, podcast have seen it before, but I, I had not, where we're actually laying off and terminating doctors due to volume. And, and you know, it sounds like a bad thing, but I've seen nurses and therapists and, you know, uh, receptionists, stuff like that, billing folks laid off because of low volume. I've never seen doctors and radiologists laid off, but that was happening. So because all of those diagnostics stopped at a standstill for a long months or a year time period, we had delays in cancer diagnosis. And now for the next five to 10 years, it's estimated we're going to see increase higher levels. Instead of presenting at stage one or in situ, we're going to start seeing stage two, three, and fours as presentation stages. So we're going to start seeing a real increase in deaths, unfortunately, and metastasis to bone and brain. That's the unfortunate side that maybe not enough people are talking about these lockdowns, the, the side effects that it has not only on psychology and kids in school and all that, but actual healthcare in cancer patients. Yeah, I remember, um, you know, I have family that works in various hospitals uh, in different positions, uh, some physicians, some in more technical roles. They were echoing the same sentiment, especially during the beginning and the middle parts of 2020, when the pandemic was really, we didn't really know what we were up against. You know, people were, there's a lot of question marks everywhere. And, you know, they would come to me and say, we've, you know, my favorite doctor is no longer there, or, you know, I'm not seeing the number of patients I used to see, even though on the TV, the hospitals were busy and and you saw just how insanely busy they were. And I don't want to say that people were encouraged to stay away if they truly needed to be screened or to be seen. But the fear kind of compounded. So top that with the massive amounts of loss in staff, nurses, physicians, techs being kind of let go, radiation oncology centers seeing all-time low numbers. Definitely an interesting little study there. Well, and, and you know, it's not even just radiation oncology too. It's medical oncology, some drugs that were typically given only in infusion centers or were given at home. Now, here's some good things from that is there are some drugs now that can be given at home that previously were not. So that's a good thing. The other thing that I think was good that came out of the pandemic is telehealth. So now, you know, for follow-up, the vast majority of radiation oncology patients who are treated for cure, when they're coming in for follow-up, it's cool and it's awesome that they're coming in for follow-up. But they might wait in the lobby for 30 minutes. They might 
you know, go and talk to the doctor and, and maybe they're behind schedule or whatever. And then they spend five, 10 minutes with the doctor, but maybe it took them an hour to get ready and another hour to drive there. So this is like half their day for a five, 10 minute visit. Well, if they can do that from home and it's the same outcome, the doctor still gets paid. To me, telehealth is here to stay, by the way. And so telehealth is going to stay. And the weekly visits, which were temporary for radiation oncologists, you could do weekly visits, telehealth, even if you were in a different room, because uh, if a patient was having COVID, you didn't want to spread it to all the other patients you were meeting with. That is temporary only during the pandemic. But that, uh, my recommendation has been to, we got to go back face to face. But the telehealth for the consultations for the follow-ups, I think that's a great thing. And uh, it's true to say. Yeah, I would agree. I've, I've got some families going through, or some family members going through treatment now. And that changed for them as well. The, the thing that hasn't changed is obviously you can't draw labs at home. There are some things that have to, you know, stay. But yes, saving several hours in the car, living in a rural part of the country, saving several hours in the car both ways and uh, waiting in a lobby where anxiety is already high because you have a, a compromised immune system and now you're subjecting yourself to the public even more, right? It's a comfort knowing that telehealth is coming along, even for simple things. Because I, I got a call from a friend a, a couple of months ago who um, her daughter had injured her leg somehow they were able to get on the, instead of going to the local urgent care center, they were able to get a telehealth conference on a video with a physician and didn't have to go anywhere, which I thought was really pretty cool. It's super cool. I'm sorry to hear about your family member, but that is super cool. You know, it reminds me, I went to uh, my family and I, we were on vacation and we were in Paris and I had started getting this fever and started getting this Super tired. I was like, oh man, I've got strep. And if you've ever had strep, then you recognize I got it. I don't know how I got it, but I have it. I was like, oh man, I'm out of the country. This is so messed up. I called the front desk and told them what the situation was. And they said, no problem. We'll have our on call physician conceive. And this was a Hilton. I mean, this was a like, you know, I mean, it's just a Hilton in Paris. So check this out. Within 45 minutes, the doctor was in my hotel room, wrote a script, and within recognized it immediately. And within went downstairs, gave the script to the bellman, and went to the local pharmacy. Ten minutes later, I had, you know, the antibiotics. And this all happened within like an hour and a half. I was like, oh my God, this is probably going to cost, you know, thousands of dollars. I didn't have no idea. So it was, ended up costing me $175 and uh, $10 for the antibiotics. And this was like maybe 15 years ago. Like, oh my God, that needs to happen in the US. And finally, it's happening. Correct. <laughs> so, which is great. In my mind, I was thinking, oh my goodness, at a, a hotel physician, wow. And how do you even use, how do you use your insurance internationally? All these questions are popping up. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I was just like, I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable. And then, you know, 
if you've had strep, you know, you go downhill really fast and then you take the antibiotics and you recover pretty fast too. So that day I was out of commission, but by the next day I felt better and started having fun vacation. Able to enjoy your Paris vacation. Yeah. Lovely. So I want to be clear that I am a supporter of the U.S. healthcare system. Of course. I do think that there are, of course, like that, some things like telehealth and all that I think the European system uh, did before us and was better at and we've implemented and now we're, we're here to stay and all that kind of stuff. One of the things that doesn't get talked about enough is when we start saying that healthcare in France or Germany or uh, Italy, wherever, is less expensive than the U.S., what doesn't get said is that we're doing the research for the entire world, essentially. So what ends up happening is all of those new drugs that come into the market, we're spending literally billions of dollars uh, doing all the research on those. And so when that goes out to market, some of these other countries don't let those drugs initially get on the formularies. So we spend roughly healthcare is for the GDP uh, gross domestic product in the United States is roughly 18.5%. In some places like England, it's like 65 7.5%. And throughout Europe, it's like 6 to 8%. So it's only a fraction of ours. But what, what ends up happening, what doesn't get said, is some of those expensive drugs just aren't made available. And so... And then when they are, it's a generic version. Mm -hmm. So we've paid for all of that research. And, and that's, that's a part that's, I think, under, underappreciated mm -hmm. and underrecognized. And the only reason that I know some of that is because we changed so many of the research protocols for pharmaceuticals at U.S. Oncology. We were taking what used to take five years to fill in some of these patient requirements and we were closing studies in less than six months. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. No, that's impressive. Was amazing. Talk about warp speed. Yeah, I really warp speed. Absolutely. It was crazy. It was crazy in a good way. Crazy in a good way. Yeah. How do you hit the accelerator like that? You know, it was, keep in mind, we were, I think all of this is uh, public knowledge. We were publicly traded what was happening was we had 1,200 to 1,400 oncologists around the country. And what we did was we centralized research in Houston. And we would take all of those oncologists that were putting in all of their patients. And so if you're a typical medical oncologist and you have you know three or five or 20 medical oncologists in the group, whatever it is, you might see... If you're just a single medical oncologist, maybe you only see three of these patients a year. Okay. And so it will take you years to get to satisfying that number. But if it's, you now have a thousand medical oncologists and all of them are seeing three, you now have 3,000 patients that qualify for, for different things, right? Well, we started hitting the marks. We already knew, we had already done analytics internally. We knew we were going to make those numbers. And some, you know, extremely rare diseases did take, you know, years as expected. But some very relatively common diseases, 
We were closing trials absolutely in less than six months, a lot less than three months, and several in uh, six to eight weeks. So the multiples of bonuses that were coming in were enormous. And that's how the company started becoming a behemoth because we had we had so much money that we had to spend. What a good problem to have. Right. But the side effects were that it all of these drugs that would have taken years that were benefiting patients were getting into the marketplace way, way, way faster. And this was in the late 90s. So now, you know, there's a a completely different way of doing research uh, today. Unfortunately, when you look at it, only around 5% of adults get put into research trials. Right. And that's, that's too bad. The converse is true for pediatrics. Roughly 95% of children are entered into research trials. And that's why the cure rates of children have grown exponentially over the last two decades. If we only had even 15% of adults into research trials, our cure rates would climb dramatically. You find these drug trials being accelerated. And I know I threw that question on you and I appreciate your answer. But you see these drug trials being accelerated to a point years ahead of their time or very things are getting wrapped up. And you're, you know, you said it yourself that the silver lining of all of that, the expenditures and the efforts and the work there is that now years ahead of what would have been the release date for life-saving medications has been just fast-tracked. Talking about the dollar side of it does make it seem a little cold. But if you look at how many lives have been affected, impacted, and saved because of those dollar bills, that truly is an amazing thing. It really is. Even the drugs that didn't prove to be efficacious. At least the pharmaceutical companies were able to refocus on the ones that did work. I hate to switch tracks on you, but I wanted to chat about something that you and I had a, you know, we, we had a conversation last week um, ahead of our podcast here. And, and you had brought to my attention a company that I think is worth discussing, and that was Nanolife. Would you mind sharing? A little bit with our listeners, because I think, you know, uh, and again, I, I hate such the, the abrupt change of topic, but before we run out of time here, I wanted to make sure to cover this because I think it was such a moving story and one that folks need to hear. Yeah. No, I forgot all about that, Tracy. <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. When I was getting started in our company, early on, we had a conference in Chicago. And at this building and coding conference, it was standing room only. There was a gentleman who had come up from Bloomington, Indiana. And in Bloomington, at that time, the only operational treating proton facilities were Loma Linda and Mass General. And they were both uh, hospital facilities. Well, Indiana University donated a $70 million accelerator to um, MPRI. And at that time, there was Dr. Cameron, Hadley Ford, and some other folks at this small, uh, Dr. Alan Thornton, uh, at uh, this small facility in Bloomington, Indiana. And it was the first freestanding proton facility in the United States. And that is really kind of a big deal because Bloomington, Indiana, if you've ever been there, it's a, it's a beautiful little town, but it, it is a little town. And we went in and 
we got lucky enough to meet with the administrator and Dr. Cameron and team on helping to manage that facility for the first year of its operations. Uh, there was a married couple. Uh, they were both radiation therapists. They treated patients, did all the administrative stuff, but we were the management of that firm and we did all the billing and collections. At that time, there was no negotiated rates. Nobody had ever heard of freestanding protons because they didn't exist. So we negotiated with Medicare. We negotiated with every single commercial insurance company, Medicaid, everybody. Everything was a first. And we established the first payment rates for freestanding proton in the United States. And we got some pretty good, it was excellent rates. And here's the whole deal. That facility, because it was a donated accelerator, we got great rates. Hadley Ford, who was a past broker with uh, Wall Street, and he had all kinds of financial connections. And he worked with Dr. Cameron and, and a bunch of really sharp, smart folks. And they were smart enough to hire Dr. Alan Thornton or get recruit Dr. Alan Thornton, who is brilliant. He's a cool person, but he's a brilliant physician. And his whole thing was, you know, we've got to treat this super complicated, failed at three other cancer center person and given a few months to live and let's see what we can do kind of thing. And like he would really get into that, like a complicated jigsaw puzzle. And then he would get in there and, you know, he would find some way to make some magic happen. And he would give those patients additional additional life and sometimes cure them. It was amazing, amazing, super complicated stuff. So we started using some of those outcomes and Hadley wanted to start, he wanted to put protons all over the country and all over the world. And he said, we've got to catch up to Japan. We've got to catch up to some other countries. And he wanted to borrow a billion dollars. And start doing some of this stuff. And I thought, you know, at that time, I was like, oh my God, that's like so much money. And hey, it's still so much money. And even though he had a lot of friends on Wall Street, at least that I understood, he wasn't getting a lot of return calls and a lot of input. So he ended up wanting to create a uh, way to get some of these funds from Belgium. And we started talking to some Belgian banks. And we created some performas and all kinds of stuff. And he ended up getting a huge amount of money. I believe it was $750 million from these investors overseas. And that was the genesis of freestanding facilities. And he built the Proton facility in Oklahoma, one in Chicago, one in New Jersey, and one in Seattle. And he had plans of another eight. And what ended up happening was at that time, these facilities were costing like $125 million plus. And uh, I remember uh, University of Florida, when it came online, it was $225 million. And that was the most expensive until uh, New York Proton came online, and that was $330 million, which is now state-of-the-art in the world. And so all of that started happening. And then uh, today... There are 26 
live proton facilities in the United States, 25 under construction, and another 20 being negotiated. So that all is from Little Bloomington, Indiana. Made it happen. That's impressive. So Indiana University really deserves a lot of credit. And Hadley Ford does. Dr. Cameron, who was an amazing person. Meek Schroeder. And I know I'm forgetting a lot of other names, but there's a lot of people who deserve a lot of credit. Absolutely. It was a, um, as someone who has very in-depth experience with that facility myself, was an amazing fixture there in the community. It really changed, I felt like at the time, the path forward for protons you know, the development of Jill's house, uh, the, the patient resource centers, the, you know, and this is obviously away from the development side, but the, the things that came from that really pushed the field forward. You know, a lot of people came from there. Alan Freeman, John Weinbeck, uh, Chris Chandler. A lot of people came from that organization. You yourself uh, were over there. And it's a cool, cool thing that, I don't think a lot of people know about, honestly. Yeah, it's unfortunate that it it has closed, but I think the spirit lives on. Oh, absolutely. And it was used as a, as a research facility. But once all these other places started opening up, they started getting... Uh, oh, so Nanolife. Let me tell you about Nanolife. So at this time, as Hadley was growing all of this stuff and he was trying to get the $750 million, the CEO of Nanolife, which is a company now defunct, was simultaneously working with us. And we had to sign uh, NDAs to not share information with both companies. And I was quite uh, impressed and flattered with our company and our team that both the nation's largest management companies of Protons at the time came to our firm. And this particular guy, he was designing destination Proton facilities. So he wanted to have the Ritz-Carlton Four Seasons effect of protons. And I remember that I forgot some of the architects and designers' names. It was was a long time ago. It was about like 19 years ago. And what they were doing was they would have these blueprints and they were designing waterfalls within the cancer center with moving streams. And so there would be walkways and bridges that you could do... uh, wheelchairs through and there were live trees. It was like an atrium within this facility. And some of these facilities were 100,000 square feet large. So it was basically moving water all throughout it. And I was like, this is pretty amazing. But you know, you realize a large part at that time, a large part of our population is going to be prostate. You know, We're telling these men to come with a full bladder and get waterfalls and streams, that's going to like, gonna be really tough for them to, to hold it. And, but you know, we, we went on and they kind of tilted their waterfall some. What they did was they wanted to have a design to have this incredible, incredible facility. They wanted to have, at that time, they were going to put a coffee bar in there. They wanted a barista. They wanted a cafe. They wanted chefs private chefs in there to cater meals for the cancer patients. It would be attached to a hotel through a walkway on one side that was like a Ritz-Carlton or a Four Seasons. 
And on the other side, so they would have three walkways. One of them was to the hotel. One of them was to a shopping mall. And like they envisioned all kinds of luxury brands and designers in the shopping mall. So it wasn't your typical shopping mall. And then they wanted, and then the other hallway would attach to a hospital. And they would provide oncology care of all kinds in the hospital. And that was the overall design. They had talked to the Middle East and got a verbal promise of $8 billion. And uh, it was from one of the royal families in the Middle East. And then right when they were presenting a lot of these blueprints, the Middle East changed direction. And they withdrew the $8 billion. I believe they were only going to offer a half a billion, 500 million, which is still a huge sum, but was nowhere near to pay for the kind of stuff that they were developing and drawing blueprints from. And unfortunately, that CEO committed suicide uh, shortly afterwards. And then Nanolife, which was preparing for to go public, everything fell apart. And Probably why, if anyone has heard from it, you haven't heard from it in in many years. That's what ended up happening. And if you've never heard of Nanolife, that was the competitor that was to be to Procure, which went under. And that's how it went under. Interesting. So the dissolution of Nanolife affected the life of Procure? Well, it did because when Nanolife was in there, their concept was something known as an anti-proton. And they were working with the accelerator in Europe. So he got a patent for it. And the concept was that they were going to inject the patient with this dye that would cause the cancer center to, or the cancer cells to light up a little bit. And they would do PET and MRI imaging and do a crossover image so the patient could watch during the treatment. The, The whole concept was to have single fraction or three fraction treatments. So each time the patient would be watching a monitor and they would watch the live destruction of their tumor, which would have a a psychological benefit on the patient and improve outcomes. And while all of that was going on with, it was Kern. Kern or Fern? CERN? CERN. Yes, CERN. That's where it was. That's where some of the research was happening. Thank you. So psychologically, this was going to be beneficial for the patient. And while Nanolife was promoting this to a lot of the top radiation oncologists in the United States, they were getting cross-education from Procure and Nanolife at the time. And that's what caused the proliferation of protons to come live. And right now, there's already a... So we invented carbon ions here in the United States. And then because of the cost of facilities... Even though uh, at the time, it would be $500 million to do carbon ions with little or no reimbursement. So carbon ion went on to Japan. They invested in it through the research. They are today actually making some of that Nanolife dream true. They are doing single fraction treatments of lung uh, already and are publishing on it. So Japan made that dream come true. And uh, we have signed a deal in the United States 
and carbon ions are coming to the United States. Another one is already in discussion. And down the line, helium and neon are also being discussed and presented here in the United States for incorporation of treatment. So be pretty interesting in the next couple of decades. And you know, all of that kind of research and why the ROAPM gets into this is we have got to have our outside of the ROAPM, we've got to have some of this research paid for and recognized because that allows for the abscopal effect to take place which is where you're treating the primary tumor and you're treating with immunotherapy at the same time so that you can treat just the primary tumor, save some of that nodal treatment and preserve some of the immune system, which is enhanced by immunotherapy and uh, improves outcomes. In the the future, we're going to start seeing cancer centers have their own labs so that we can see do we need to do daily alteration of the immunotherapy and radiation doses? And that's what's coming in the next decade to our world. It's pretty exciting. Incredibly exciting stuff to think about 100% customized treatments. I mean, cure rates, right? Yes. So that's why the ROA, that's kind of some of the behind the scenes stuff of other reasons the ROAPM can't work the way it is because we don't want to destroy the innovative capacity of those in the United States and uh, the incredible scientists and researchers we have here. Absolutely. So many hats off to those folks in the labs every day doing, wearing those boots, trucking through the mud, taking those steps to get us to these dreams, these goals of fully customized treatments uh, built for an individual. Yeah, I would encourage you to to look up anybody who's listening. There is, uh, I wish I remembered her name. She is, uh, man, she is just an incredible speaker and researcher from the University of Washington. She's doing research in the abscopal effect. And uh, she is a radiation oncologist and she is an awesome presenter. She's really, really cool. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, Corinne, was with me at Astro about maybe three or four years ago, whenever it was in Chicago last. She was up there and <laughs> we were listening. I had brought her just to, as a point of interest. And she was talking about some of her research and probably one of the top researchers in the world. And Corinne just walked up to her and talked to her like she was a friend. And, and she's like, you're an incredible presenter. Can you give me some tips? And <laughs> You know, wow. it was really, I'll always remember, she was super kind to my daughter and took the time to really talk to her and give her some tips. And, and if she's listening or does listen, there's any way I can ever help you in your entire career, I will do it. Well, Ron, I certainly appreciate you taking time out of your day to come and chat with us, share your story and allow us to get to know you a little better. You've really given us a lot to think about. Well, cool. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you're still listening, please do click that subscribe button. Continue to join us as we travel the globe, picking the brains of the best and brightest in our field and asking them all kinds of interesting questions about their personal experiences. We've had a blast having you with us today. Thank you so much for listening and we look forward to seeing you next time. Have a great day.